1: So, yeah, don't say not yet. Who said that? Maybe I
2: should uh, back up a little.
1: I'll back up a little bit. Give you some room. (laughs) I know. I'm not contagious anymore, I swear. Burdette, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Um, If if you don't know, my wife and I, Leanne, we actually met in New Orleans. And in 2005, we were living there when Hurricane Katrina went through, um, which was devastating, obviously. One of the nonprofit organizations that did the most amazing work to us was Habitat for Humanity. In the midst of the chaos that was going on down there,
2: Habitat had boots on
1: the ground in ways that we couldn't even comprehend and how quickly they were able to mobilize. They have such a long storied history, and I'm so grateful that we're able to partner here in Richmond with Habitat. So would you mind just sharing a little bit about Habitat for Humanity? Sure. It's a, it's a great
2: history, and uh, really when I came to work, I knew some of it because I'd served on Habitat boards in North Carolina and Virginia. Uh, but I didn't know, I really dug into it when I came in and found that it really started in the 40s. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Clarence Jordan, w- who came out of seminary, really felt a call to live in radical community in South Georgia, which is not a place you think about living in radical community, really, in the 40s. But they, they formed a interracial, uh, non-denominational, non-denominational Christian farm community there, And uh, over the course of the years, they found that housing insecurity is one of the key components of uh, people that they were living around in South Georgia that were living in poverty. So they began a program where uh, they, as a community, started building homes. And the really first habitat homes were in Texas and in Africa. So from the very beginning, it was an international story. Um, And so that's really how it started. In the 70s, it really formalized into Habitat for Humanity. Uh, Millard Fuller, some of you have heard that name, was our leader for many years, and really became uh, and with Jimmy Carter, some of his, Jimmy Carter did not not start Habitat for Humanity, but was probably our most famous volunteer, and it became a global uh, movement, a global nonprofit, probably the largest global nonprofit housing ministry in the world, and so it's very exciting to be a part of that. Uh, we're in 70 countries now in all 50 states. Uh, there are 40 Habitat affiliates just in uh, Virginia alone. Uh, we're the largest, and we encompass uh, the city of Richmond as well as the counties of uh, Chesterfield and Henrico. Uh, Habitat for Humanity International started in 76. We started in 86. Okay. And we've now built over 380 homes and repaired
1: 130 yeah. at that time. So wow. Trying to make an impact here. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, I think one of the things um, I know personally for me that can, I can sometimes take for granted is a roof over my head. Um, I grew up solidly middle class in Southern California. Uh, I've never had to fear not having, you know, uh, housing. Um, can you share with us just a little bit of how housing insecurity really does affect just human flourishing
2: in general? Sure. Um, Some of you were aware that this spring they announced there were uh, nearly 40,000 housing units short in Richmond to meet the need. A lot of that came out of the pandemic when they weren't building and now they're trying to catch up. But uh, we have surveyed our own families to find out what impact it had and found that a lot of folks... Uh, who are coming out of uh, unaffordable housing a lot of folks are are giving as much as one-sixth of their 50 percent of their income to housing which is a huge number we try to keep our families at under 30 percent but one out of six people are giving over 50 percent so first of all they're stretched they're giving all their money to housing and so they're not able to really give the funds they need to to support uh, themselves and their families we're finding that a lot of our folks are coming out of unhealthy situations. Uh, having a Habitat home really impacts health. People are not necessarily aware of how not having a healthy place to live impacts your life. They come out of a place too that are very, some, some places are very unsafe. We, we take for granted that we live in safe, stable, healthy homes, but the people, uh, even in Richmond, are living in some, some situations that are very insecure. They're living in places that there are, is crime, where there is, are landlords that uh, will not improve conditions, where there are mold or uh, unhealthy situations. So we're trying to raise the issue of having affordable housing, but also the impact that having just some stable, secure, healthy places to live are, are important for just be able to succeed in the rest of life and to go on and to have that foundation for other places in your life where you
1: need help. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, we didn't talk about this, so I'm sorry if I'm going to throw you for oh, a loop. It, it, just, it just kind of clicked <laughs> in my head. One, well, one of the things that I've always experienced with Habitat that I've appreciated is that there really is a partnership with the family, correct? Uh, it's yeah. not just a, hey, here's a house, God be with you. Like, right. it's it's really that there's a partnership. Can you talk uh, about agree. that? A I'm, bit? I'm
2: glad you thought that, um, because they really are become our families. When someone's accepted into our program, they give uh, what's, well, first of all, they have to qualify for income, because mm-hmm. a lot of our folks are, are um, they have to have income to be able to repay. They build a home where they get a 0% uh, uh, interest mortgage, which, yeah. 0% so in this day and time is really pretty nice. Yeah, that's not <laughs> we're, we're a nonprofit. So I mean, we don't want their housing when they come to Habitat to be a burden to them. So uh, they give uh, 350 hours of what we call sweat equity. That's volunteer time. They're building their own home beside our volunteers. They also, uh, we provide for them 10 um, homeowner seminars where they learn how to be a homeowner. All of our people are first-time homeowners, so they've not had an experience what it's like to be a homeowner. They've been renters or in in other uh, kind of housing situations. So they're they're really partnering with Habitat and become forever our families. They know they can come to us if there's a need or a crisis in their home, and we continue
1: to support them after they have a home. That's, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. Well, um, you have a captive audience uh, here. Um, they can't leave, we've barred the doors. Um, just kidding, we didn't, don't freak out. Uh, is there anything that you would like us here in The Bird to know, or those that are watching at home? Uh, is this something that you're like, hey, you should know this, and this is ways that you could get involved and we would love to have your involvement? Well, let me just say,
2: Habitat believes that everyone deserves a decent place to live. And our mission is to put God's love into action, by bringing people together to build homes, to build community, and to build hope. And so uh, there's a number of ways you can be involved in doing that. Uh, we always uh, love to have volunteers. Uh, kind of our quintessential pictures, in which you had on your slide, which are, I don't know where Habitat, but anyway, it's yeah. great, fit in perfect, of uh, people building homes. Yeah. And so we need volunteers. We're usually building four to six homes um, all the time year round. And so we need volunteers to come and help us, and you don't have to be skilled whatsoever. We have great habit, uh, habitat construction professionals who are right there to help guide you on, on everything that you need to know. Uh, we also, I bet there's some people out there who have been a part of our restores. That's kind of our, one well, other signature uh, ministry of ours. So uh, giving, uh, donating items to our two restores, uh, in Chesterfield near the Chesterfield Town Center and on Rhone Avenue and Northside. Uh, Bringing your items to our Restore, shopping there. And a lot of people don't know you can volunteer there. You can help us uh, in the store as a volunteer. So uh, there are other uh, projects that you can find on our website, but those are two. And, of course, giving. Um, It costs a lot now to build a home as unbelievable some of you already know to build a home nowadays especially coming out of the pandemic last year we saw the price of building materials just skyrocket so uh what you're doing as a church is an, will be an enormous impact for us to be able to, to have the funds to build home more homes and we're trying to increase our capacity because there's an enormous need in richmond as i've shared so we're trying to build multifamily homes more where we can build get more
1: people into um permanent housing so here's, here's the deal, y'all. Um, if you would like to give to our Advent offering this year, um, you could certainly write a check and in the memo lines just write Advent and you could put it in the offering boxes here in the front of the room um, when we take communion later on you could go to our website um, and give through that there's an Advent drop down uh, we definitely want to challenge everyone again I said last week um, like you all are a generous people and we're so grateful that you are a generous people we want to be good stewards and be a blessing with all the things that God has given us whether that is great or little and so I hope that you will as we're you know kind of coming to the end of our Advent season that if you have not given yet um, Uh, that you would give to to our advent offering this year Um, but beyond just the 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 kind of financial aspect um, there will be opportunities that's one of the things we really wanted to dig into this coming year is we didn't just want it to be hey here's money that we're giving to something we really wanted to be able to have some follow-up where we could go and tangibly work with these different organizations and we will be partnering with Habitat to do some work days here early in 2024 and hopefully beyond Um, and again you can sign up for for what is coming up we'll have that up on the website. but just really want to encourage you to dig into that. If you have any questions um, for my friend here, he will be in the lobby at the end of the service uh, and I'm sure that he would be happy to answer um, any questions that you have, well maybe that are pertinent. (laughs) What's your favorite color? Uh, blue. Okay. Carolina, Carolina blue. So like now you don't have to ask that. Now you can really focus on what matters most. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for that. Really, really appreciate it. Why don't you guys go ahead and take a look at this bumper video and Chris is going to come out and give us a sermon today.
0: Bible, and I've been trying to read through the whole Bible this year, and while you're reading through as well, one thing I like to do is imagine myself in the story, like if I was there in this moment, who would I be? And when you think about the Christmas story with Jesus and Mary and Joseph and angels and wise men and all those things, um, I I, I read that and I go, okay, who would I be? If I had been there, who would I have been? And I think, well, maybe I would be one of the shepherds, you know, like out in the fields watching their flocks by night. But that doesn't really work for me because in Jesus' day, shepherds is a young man's game. And I'm not as young as I'd like to think I am. So I probably wouldn't have been a shepherd if I had been there. So that's not me in the story. But then I'm like, well, maybe in the Christmas story, I would have been one of the wise men. Like, I'd like to think of myself as wise. Like, the the people who are looking for the stars and looking out in the sky trying to figure out when is Jesus coming. They were searching for answers. That's me, right? I'm like... Thoughtful, I think, and philosophical and and looking for answers and trying to find God. But then I remember I'm also a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan, which is one of the most losing franchises in sports history, so I'm not that wise. Like, probably not. I probably give myself a little too much credit there. Um, I, I think in reality, had I been there in that day, I would have been just like a regular guy. Maybe a regular guy in Bethlehem or around Jerusalem just hanging out in the empire doing some job, some middle-class worker job. Maybe I would have been friends with Joseph. You know, he comes to the town I'm like, Joseph, where you been? And he shows up in town. He's like, this is Mary. She's pregnant. It's not my kid. She got pregnant from God. And I would have pulled Joseph aside. We would have gone together and gotten some sort of ale. And I would have said, Joseph, dude, come on. Own up to this. Like, you're kidding yourself. What are you doing? Dude, come on. Get serious, right? Maybe that... Maybe if I'd been in the story, that would have been me. Because I, I guess in some ways I, I feel like maybe I'm just a, a, a regular guy. And it's hard for us to imagine ourselves in, in those stories because
1: the first century culture is so different than ours.
0: You may have grown up in a religious home and maybe a legalistic religious home, but you did not grow up in a first century Jewish Pharisee religious home. Not, not, nothing quite like that. Um, and so
1: I wanted to talk about
0: what Jesus. Uh, his birth means for different groups of people. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about what, it, uh, what Jesus' birth meant for very religious people, for the good people in the culture, and how he challenged them. And last week, Topher was up here, and he talked to you about what um, Jesus' birth meant for people who were outcasts, maybe bad, but not necessarily bad, but just on the outside of regular society. Um, and maybe you heard that. And maybe you're thinking, I'm a pretty good person, so the Jesus story isn't really for me. Or maybe you thought I'm a bad person, so there's no way the Jesus story is for me. Maybe you're good or bad or whatever. But my guess is that most people in this room, you're neither good nor bad. You just feel regular. Like you would say, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not perfect. Everyone's going to say that, right? I'm not perfect, but I'm I'm a decent person. I'm kind of normal. So I'm gonna to talk today about not the good people, not the bad people, but just regular people. And the city, we've been talking about cities um, in, in this series, and the city that I think in some ways represents normal people in that day is Rome. This was the Roman Empire, so the average person in in the empire is a Roman citizen. Now, Rome, when you think of ancient Rome, it's the seat of power, obviously, it's the capital, right? It's wealthy. Um, it's religious in some ways. There's Apollo and Zeus and all the, 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 the gods and there would be statues and there would be temples devoted to, to that. But the average person in the empire, they're sort of Roman citizens. Even the Israelites the, in the first century, um, they may not necessarily be full Roman citizens, but they potentially are Roman subjects is what they would be considered. They're a subject to the empire. And so they, in some way, belong to Rome. And when Jesus was born, he was born in the Roman Empire, as and so he would have been considered a, a Roman subject. Now, Rome was problematic for the Jews. They thought of the Romans because of all their gods, their polytheists, right? all their multiple gods, and all their... All the things you think about, you associate with the Roman Empire from TV and movies and books and whatever. um, The Jews hated that stuff. They hated the fact that the Romans were gross and pagan and, you know, sort of the drinking and the orgies and all these things that kind of go along with that. To the Jews, the Romans would have appeared very immoral and bad. And... um, and, and so uh, the
1: relationship that the Jews in the first century have to Rome, to the Roman Empire that is ruling them, is a big deal, and it's on everyone's mind,
0: because they're having to live, their own temple in Jerusalem has Roman, uh, a Roman seal on it, it has, it has Roman influence all around, so they're having to deal with that. And I was surprised to see, when looking through the Gospels, that Jesus himself, living in the Roman Empire, does not spend a lot of time talking about the Roman Empire. He doesn't uh, interact with it a a ton. There's a couple little examples.
1: But he doesn't have a lot of interaction
0: with it. Um, And and his attitude towards it is actually really interesting. I want to show you one sort of famous scripture where Jesus has something to say about the Roman Empire. Uh, Luke chapter 20. I'll start with verse 19. Let me read it to you. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This whole thing's a trap, right? And it says so. Luke's given us some details. They want this good religious teacher to say something against the Roman Empire because if he does, he will, some of the Jews will like him, but then they can go back to the Romans and say, This guy's speaking against the Roman Empire, you should arrest him. So they're trying to catch him.
2: And he sidesteps, as he
0: often did, he sidesteps their, their issue and, and gets out of it. They say, Hey, this coin, should we pay tribute to these or not? And he's basically, in like, in, I, I picture this like so chill. And so cool the way he is about it, he's sort of like, I mean, whose picture's on the coin, guys? They're like, well, Caesar's picture. He's like, apparently he wants it then. Give it to him. And that's basically his answer. The, the Caesar, the thing you think of like, oh, the Roman Empire and the good Caesar and bad there's Julius Caesar and the Augustus and all these things, he's sort of like, eh, give them their coins. If, they, if, that, if they're about that game and they want that, just go ahead and give them uh, what, is, what is theirs. Now, I don't want to stretch this too much. But I think there is a little bit of a modern application, at least in Jesus' attitudes towards the power structure of his day. Um, because we, uh, when election season comes around in this country, we get all about it. It becomes the thing. It's the dominant discourse in our country for long periods of time. And I don't know if you notice what the calendar is about to flip to. But we're about to do this again. And it becomes a thing. And people get really worked up about, you know, effectively, we get worked up about who's going to be Caesar for us next year. Um, and, and and what are we going to get a new Caesar? Are we going to have the same Caesar? And we're kind of doing that same sort of thing. And and you know, it's, you know it's a lot of hype because people will say, and will, I'm sure they'll say next year, this is the most important election of our lifetime.
1: Like, if you're 25, you've probably heard that three times already.
0: You should start catching on to the fact that this is just what they sell you. <laughs> Like, it, no, it's not. Um, and you get kind of cynical. I'm like, y'all are like the boy who cried most important election of our lifetime. Like, I stop saying that. But I see Christians get sucked into that political thing as well, and we get really worked up about it. And we get thrown by American politics. And look, in Jesus' day, there were plenty of things in the Roman Empire that were immoral and wrong and things he could have spoken out against. But he chooses not to speak up on those things, not because he didn't think they were wrong, But because that's not where hope is found. That's not the kingdom he was trying to establish. He was establishing a community of love that's going to, over the course of several hundred years, effectively undermine that whole power structure of the Roman Empire and turn the world upside down. And they're not going to do that by saying, this Caesar's not the right Caesar. They're going to do that by person-to-person loving well and serving well. So his followers, Jesus' followers, did not have their hope in the political leadership of the day. They had their hope in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about that in 2024, specifically starting in January. We're going to start a new series, and we're going to talk about the anxiety that creeps up on us and, um, and how we can uh, follow Jesus through anxiety. In a series we're starting in January called Anxious and Afraid. Um, so uh, so that's One of Jesus' interactions with the Roman Empire. Um, I want to tell you and and read to you an interaction he has with a a regular guy. And I want you to see how it shows up. Not a bad person, not a good person, but a regular person. Um, And the person I'm going to tell you a story about from Mark chapter 10, you're going to at first think he's not regular. And I understand that, but but hang with me for a second. Um, This is a story that's told in three Gospels. Uh, I'm going to read you the one from Mark. Listen to this, Mark chapter 10. And so he was studying out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Okay, this guy is uh, talked about three times in the Gospels. Mark just calls him a man, so this man comes up to Jesus and talks to him. The other Gospel writers give some more context, and they call him, um, you know, obviously, wealthy, right? But they call him a ruler and they refer to him as young. So historically, we have called this guy the rich, young ruler. He is wealthy, he is moral, and he is connected. Um, And I think this makes him somewhat like an average Roman citizen and and, and, and definitely like an average American, Um, sort of if we were to go middle class. Now, you may think about, like, I don't relate to that guy. I'm not uh, rich. I'm not young anymore, and I'm certainly not a ruler. Um, and I get that, but um, I, I think if we look at global standards, Americans are the wealthy people in the world, wealthiest country in the world. So, by global standards, we are the wealthy ones. Even though I know there's a range of wealth in this room, right? But by by those standards, we are by, by the global standards, we are the wealthy ones. Um, and um, I think we are um, moral people generally. Um, you know, um, obviously you could break that out in a bunch of little ways, but I, I sort of picture this guy. If we're going to put him in modern American terms. He's sort of a you know, like maybe maybe he's a college grad. He's working in a company. He's doing fairly well. He's in leadership training, um, and he's a good person. Good person. He doesn't do a whole bunch of terrible things. Um, he, he's not a maybe he's not a criminal. Um, and, and he goes up to Jesus and he says, man, uh, and he asks him this important question, what do I need to do to in, inherit in eternal life? And really what he's asking Jesus is, what does it take to be good? How can I be a, a good person who's like doing life well? And Jesus gives him the answer. He, he rattles off the Ten Commandments. He doesn't rattle off all the Ten Commandments. He starts with the latter half of the Ten Commandments, the easy ones. He's like, don't tell people, don't cheat on your spouse, don't, you know, don't uh, lie, don't steal from your, like, that kind of stuff. He starts there, and the guy, hearing this, is basically like, check, 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 haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I'm basically a good person, I've mostly been a good person my entire life, and I would imagine if we rattled off that list to you, you could do the same. You and I would be like, I mean... I haven't, you know, stolen, I haven't defrauded anybody, um, I haven't killed anybody, you know, like, see, I'm a good person, basically, is is kind of how we would think about it. But I want you to know how Jesus looks at and thinks about this guy. Listen again, this one little thing says in verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go sell all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What did he do? He loved him. Now, you kind of go like, I mean, he's Jesus. He loves everyone, right? That's kind of his thing. Sure. True statement. But there's only five times in the Gospels that it tells us he loves someone. And this is one of them. Not to the best person, not to the worst person, but to this guy who's trying to get it right. Jesus loves him. And notice the disappointment that comes after that. He loves this guy, and this guy walks away. Isn't that crazy? He's like, man, I I feel, Jesus sees this guy, and he's like, man, I feel for him. He is trying to get it right. Like, I'm going to meet him. I'm going to put something out there for him, and he puts something out there, and the guy doesn't do it. He walks away. Now this story is told in church and we typically talk about the danger of clinging to your wealth. And, he, and it makes that point, right? Like, this guy went away sad because he has many possessions. But I think there are layers to this story. And, it's, and it can be very powerful. This guy is moral, he's wealthy, he's connected. Honestly, and this is embarrassing for me to admit, but if I met this guy today in America and he walked into our church and he starts getting involved, I would want him to be on the leadership team. And be like you are great. You got it together, man. Like you're doing great things. And Jesus does not put him on the leadership team. Jesus like challenges him and the guy walks away sad. It's it's wild. And he walks away because at the end of the day his heart is not right. And I think this is an illustration of our heart matters more than our moral behavior or anything else. Now our behavior should and eventually will be an overflow of our heart. And we can hide our hearts. We can pretend we're a good person. We can do some good things for a time. We can say the right things. We can say nice things. We can give money. We can, we can volunteer. We can do lots of things to appear to be good and right. But at the end of the day, eventually, the heart comes out. And our true colors are shown. And I think this story of this guy in the Roman Empire. It, this guy reminds us, this story reminds us to dig deep and not just settle for surface stuff. To not just be trying to fix our behavior but to look into our hearts. Now let's take this to the modern day for a second. Rome is not Richmond, but there are similarities. Rome is the capital of a great empire. Now the, the actual capital of our great empire is some rich end north of Richmond, I think. Um, but uh, we are the capital of, you know, this part of the empire. And um, Rome had temples and statues, and you could walk around and see how people worshiped. We have Carytown. And if you walk through Carytown, you can see how people worship. It's just different things, right? It's money, it is certain slogans, it is certain political ideals that you have to put up in your store, let people know that, and so you can walk around and go, if you were to walk in here as an alien to this place, and you walk in, you go, oh, I can see what matters to people here, by the things they talk about, by the things they're spending money on, how we spend our time, um, Carytown, uh is, is, is worshipped in, in a certain way, and there are things here that are worshipped. Uh, Romans, maybe were not overtly religious. Um, Yeah, there's a Zeus and Apollo, but I I doubt, you know, the average Roman was like, man, I just really love my religion, I'm really all about it. And in the same way, Americans are not overtly religious. We are ostensibly, loosely, uh, in our history, have strong Christian roots. um, But but I I don't think the average American is, like, trying to follow Jesus with all of their heart um, regularly. And so um, I, I think... Um, we need to consider the culture that we're living in and think about, okay, then how does Jesus showing up? Um, how does it help us get our hearts right Because these are heart issues and, and how do I live it out in the culture that I'm in right now? So number one, let Advent remind you to get your heart right. The heart matters. Uh, when you marry someone, you are marrying their heart. When you are parenting, you are parenting the hearts of your children. When you are an employee, you either pour your heart into your work or you don't. Um, and when I say heart, I'm not just talking about your emotions. I know that's how we often use it, but it really means more than that. It's it's the will, the desire. Um, and you can change all sorts of things. You can change your appearance, you can change who you're dating, you can change who you're married to, you can make different kinds of money or more money. Uh, but it, you can change all sorts of things, and they will not necessarily change your heart. So we have to do heart work. You know the hymn we, the, the 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 Christmas song we sing every year, "Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King." What's the next line? Let every heart prepare Him room. You ever think about what we're singing there? Oh, this is supposed to be interactive. Jesus has come. Wait. Let every heart, that's us, we're supposed to, in some way, get our hearts ready for him. Prepare him room. Make a space for him to set up residence in our lives. That's what we're supposed to do. So what does that involve? Um, I think, in part, it involves serving others. But not just serving others in a one time, I volunteered at the this thing that one time, but it might involve actually making our lives revolve around service, about having lives that we pour out for others. Now, we're going to give you opportunities in the new year. You heard about Habitat for Humanity. We're going to be working with them in, in, in February, March, April, in, in that time frame. In, in January, we got Uh, Opportunities with Rise Richmond. We're supporting them. We've got opportunities with generosity feeds. We're gonna be doing a meal event with them Um, These are ways to show up and serve and I hope every single person in this room signs up and shows up and you bring friends Like let's do it, but let's not make it a thing We just did once and then we checked off the box and we're good for the year Let's look for ways that this becomes a regular thing in our lives. This means you serve in those places, you serve in the church, you serve in your work, you serve in your home. This is where it's most challenging for me. How do I serve in my own family? Now, I try to think about, in my house, about, okay, I'm going to cook for everybody, and I'm going to clean dishes, and I'm going to take the trash out, and I'm going to do things around my house to serve the people around me and to serve uh, the, 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 the family that, that we have. Um, but mostly beyond those things, I just need to be regularly thinking about where can I show up and offer support to the people around me and where can I serve them? Um, I'm not great at it, but I'm trying to grow in this area because this is something Jesus taught on. It Later on in Mark chapter 10, listen to this verse, 1045. It says, Jesus is talking about himself and he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, I was born to die I'm going to give my life for everyone. And we know that. We know that's how the story ends. We know that's where it goes. But he isn't just born to die. He says, I gave my life not to be served, but to serve. This is what I'm, this is actually what I'm here for. And if we're going to be the people who align our hearts with Jesus' heart, we need to serve as well. So let Advent remind you to get your heart right. In this season, go like, man, where can I show up? How can I give? How can I serve? Others in this season and beyond. And second thing is this: let Advent remind you that Jesus is for you. That Jesus is for you, not the good people, not the bad people, the regular people. And you know, if you've heard us the last two weeks, yes, the good people and yes, the bad people too. Right? If you're good, there's a challenge there. If you're bad, there's a challenge there. And if you're you don't feel good or bad, you just feel regular. He's here for you too. You specifically, you American in the 21st century, Jesus is for you. One of the wildest things about Christianity is is how open it is to invite people in. And in Jesus, we can find a way to be right and to get our hearts right and to be good, which is the question the rich young ruler is coming to him to ask, how can I be good? I'm reading a book right now on Stoicism in the Roman Empire because I'm really fun. And, uh, and I want to fulfill my obligation to think about the Roman Empire at least once a day. So I am doing that through this book. And one of the things the guy points out in the book is that if you had gone to a Stoic philosopher in you know, the first century, um, and, you said, and you asked them, what do I need to be good, or what is the good life?" they would give you an answer. It is this, 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 you need to do this, this, do these things, don't do these things, this is what it means to be good. He said, and the problem is in modern America, we don't think in those terms. So if you went to a philosopher today in our culture and said, what would it take to have a good life? They would give you an answer, something like, it depends on what you mean by good and it depends on what you mean by life. And they would talk to you for 20 minutes about the definition of good and the definition of life, and you would walk away from that conversation, I guess, impressed or confused by all of their knowledge, but you would not know how to live a good life. You wouldn't. That's where we're at today. That's what we have absorbed. We have no standard of what is good and what is life and what are we supposed to be about. And so when I say to you, Jesus can make your heart right and make you good, that might fall flat for you. You might be like, I'm pretty good now. I don't need Jesus to do that for you, for me. But I want you to hear this, and I hope it cuts through the noise. Um, Jesus being born at Christmas means that God sees you. And he actually knows you. And you can pretend to be something, but he knows who you truly are. And he is for you. And when you give your life to him and you are baptized into him, he changes you and, and renovates you from the inside out. Jesus has come for you, for regular people. So in your hearts, prepare him room to take up residence there.
1: And I want you to know this Rome-Richmond
0: connection. I want you to know that Jesus is for this city, for regular people who live here. This is why we planted a church in the city. It's why we meet in this building. This is why we have offices in Kerrytown, because we're committed to these streets, to these sidewalks, to these problems, to this wackiness, to this school system. To this, like We're committed to this thing here, in this time and in this place. Um, because it's something that jesus loves and we want to be here and and we've been here 15 years and we want to be here many more and we want to let people know that jesus is for them this is why we're supporting that these city projects at advent that we are because jesus is the hope of the world and we want to make people aware of that let's pray
1: Lord Jesus, um, help us to focus in and get
0: our hearts right in this Advent season. God, may we be generous people who give generously support the projects that are going on here, and maybe be generous financially, but also just with our time over this next year. Um, God, we don't want to staple service onto, onto the outside of us like we're stapling an apple to a tree and hoping it's an apple tree. We want it to grow from within us. And so, God, may we um, take these steps, maybe work on our hearts and allow you to work on our hearts so that we can become who you are calling us to be and we can honor you um, with the way we live our lives. Lord, um, in this season... Uh, May the regular people, may we all recognize that you are for us and that your birth, that you come to the world to, to, to build connection with us. May we embrace that this season. In Jesus' name, amen.